June 26, 2022, I'd like to this morning talk to you about what I entitled impossible, in quotation marks, and minority halakhic opinions. Uh, last week in the midst of the class, as we were discussing whatever we were discussing, uh, the issue arose as to why in context of halakhic discussions, in responsa, in Talmud, in Mishnah, there are minority opinions, oftentimes if not always mentioned. If halakha is, as we were advancing last week, going to be governed by the acceptance of the community, defined as it must be, well then, what then are we to say about those minority opinions, the opinions that seem to be the neglected opinions? Why do we continue studying them, talking about them, publishing them? Uh, perhaps they should be uh, relegated to the, uh, I don't know, the sidelines of history, and yet, they seem to, uh, certainly in my classes, uh, re-emerge time and time again, not only as something that's interesting and thought-provoking, but there seems to be some essence to them. I'd like to talk about that. But I'd like to, in that context, give three case studies as to what I refer to as impossible halakhic opinions. What do I mean by impossible halakhic opinions? I refer to the circumstances in halakh halakhic history where there was or is an opinion which is so to the eyes of one or more halachic deciders, so impossible that they determined it could not have been written by the person who it is purported to have been written by. So I want to give you three examples of those, and then in turn, talk about why it's significant for us to continue publishing them, discussing them, dealing with them. So that's, that's, the, uh, that's the game plan. First case study. First case study has to do with what's on my uh, cheek and chin right now. It has to do with the growth of beards. Now, the growth of beards has a storied history in Judaism. Not all that much in terms of discussion in Talmud. The Gemara at the end of Masech and Makot talks about the halachic ramifications of what's an isur in the Torah, of using a ta'ar in the eyes, in the words of the rabbis, a razor on your skin of your the skin of your face. But with regards to the importance or even the tradition of growing a beard, there's no real mention. It's not to say that they didn't have beards, has v'shalom, to suggest otherwise. But uh, there's little discussion in the sense of this is the way the traditional face of a male in Judaism should look in Talmudic times. It was as seems clear, uh, something that was for a long time period culturally uh, just accepted in Persia during that time period. The assumption, and we know this uh, based on pictures, based on descriptions, was that most men had beards. And as a result, you'll find rabbis in Talmud in Mishnah who had beards. Of course, the most famous one is Rabbi Azar ben Shana. According to many, the, the interpretation of him being 18 years old but looking like a 70-year-old is that his beard changed colors from being dark to being white. But all that being the case, what I'd like to discuss is from 500 or so years ago. From 500 or so years ago, there was, in the world of Jewish mysticism, this notion and almost normative approach that growing a beard is not only praiseworthy, but it's almost necessary. I'd like to discuss that and in turn discuss and develop an opinion who's a major mystical opinion who seemed to disagree with it and in turn it was called into question whether he actually wrote so. That's what I'd like to. Now if you're interested, I don't know, I can't tell you that I've made this all that interesting yet, but if you're interested in this sort of topic, there's a, there was a, um, a, a Jewish historian, his name was Elliot Horowitz. Elliot Horowitz, not related to the best of my knowledge to our Elliot Horowitz, although both Levim and both 
no, having the same name, but Elliot Horowitz wrote a, a comprehensive article on much of and much more than what I'm going to discuss, not the issue that I'm going to address, but the issues that form its backbone. Anyway, it goes like this. If you go not so far back, 200 or so years, Maran HaChida, Rabbi Chaim Yosef David Azulai, who passed away in 1806. That's how I wanted to start this. He writes a book called Birkei Yosef. Birkei Yosef is his commentary to Shulchan Aruch. On Siman Kof Pe Aleph in Yore De'ah, when he's dealing with the, the specific details with regards to how and you can or should not shave your beard, he writes at the conclusion of his discussion, everything that I've written is according to the letter of the law. However, when we talk about truth, the secrets, the mystical side of Torah, it's prohibited by all severities of imagination to touch your beard and change it to trim it in any way. And he says, and the later authorities already brought the words of Arizal, be it's Hakluria, of course, the father of, well, his last name, Lurianic Kabbalah, as Arizal. We'll discuss in just a moment where it's stated in the name of Arizal in source number three, but that's Marana Hida already stating it quite clearly. We do have pictures of Hida. He was Na'e Doresh, Na'e Mekayem. He had quite a beard. He also lived in Middle Eastern countries much of his life, although he'll immediately thereafter, in what's called Shir, Hashir, Shir Shirayim, his uh, footnotes to his own book, he writes there, Harav HaChasid, Ir V'Kadish, Mahari Igaz. He's quoting from Rabbi Yosef Irgaz. Rabbi Yosef Irgaz lived about 300, 350 or so years ago, and he's living during the time period of Italian Renaissance, and he's living in Italy. And Elliot Horowitz brings to attention a lot with regards to what's taking place in that time period. But that being the case, he's looking around and realizing that the traditional men, rabbis, and lay people alike are shaving their beards in Italy. Besefer Divre Yosef, Siman Kafe Katav de Behelekanistar Lonitzavu Elaha Yehidim Hasiridim Haomedim Besod Hashem. When it comes to the mystical side of tradition of Halakha, only those who are possessed with an elevated, more spiritual side of their soul and essence, they are scrupulous with regards to the mystical traditions. That being the case, he's already rationalizing, he's already defending, Rabbi Yosef Irgas is, uh, the fact that many of the rabbis and lay people of his time period, and he writes it explicitly, are becoming clean-shaven. Uh, so what we have... In your day... In your day, if you go back 100, 200 years beforehand, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff to be said about that. I'll mention already, just uh, very briefly, I just uh, a week ago I was, uh, I don't know, co-officiating, involved at a wedding where there was a Chabad rabbi. And the Chabad rabbi, and I, I struck up a conversation with him, it was always an interesting conversation to be had with people from, quote-unquote, different cultures. Uh, same religion, different cultures. Anyway, so you know, they, they read under the chupa a letter which was written to the, because the, the hatan, the, the Kala was from a Chabad family, and the Hatan was from a Syrian Ashkenazic family. But the, the Chabad side, the girls' side, the Kala, they had a letter that the Lubavitcher Rebbe, that Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, 37 years ago, wrote to the parents. And so they read it, it was written in Hebrew, under the Chupa. I actually thought that was very beautiful. I mean, I didn't say he's alive and reading in front of us. They read it, this was a blessing. And apparently the tradition was he wrote a letter to every single Hatan and Kala. 
I said, I'm just, I turned to the rabbi, I said, that's so interesting, he wrote a letter. He said, not only did he write a letter, he said, during the first 10 years from 1951 and onward, when he was the chief, chief rabbi of Chabad, of course in Crown Heights at 770, so he would officiate almost every wedding. I said, almost, I was medektik in his words. He said, it was, there was specific uh, guidelines. He said, the hatan needed to have a beard and the kala needed to wear a shetel. He said, if they weren't committed to that, which was fascinating to me, because in Chabad, you'll be hard hard-pressed to find someone who's going to appear in, front, in a synagogue, oh, maybe if you broke out, not with a beard, that's but interesting, he said, you're dealing with post-Holocaust, post not everyone was still was steadfast to their traditions. That was his principles. In truth, in Chabad, very much in line with this strand of mystical thought, they always have been, and the Rebbe himself and his father-in-law, the Friedrich Rebbe, they wrote uh, prolifically about the importance of, of sporting a beard, of having a beard. That was very important from a Kabbalistic standpoint for them. To the extent that just, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, there was a book written by Samuel Heilman and, and another fellow. It was a, a little bit of a, a sociology type of book on the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And they're developing whatever their theories were. And one of the things they point out is they look at the early pictures of the Rebbe from when he was in Berlin University. And he said, you'll see over there, he had a beard, but it was very finely groomed. You see, he trimmed his beard. Something changed. He became more religious, more this, whatever. That's his claim in there. Not getting into the specific details. Now, to a Chabadnik hearing that, I mean, that's like saying he was Mahalel Shabbat Befarhesia. I mean, you can't talk like that. There was a fellow, Chaim Rappaport, better known for another one of his books, but he wrote a Kuntres, he wrote a, a defense of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and, and, and basically saying, listen, it's beautiful, you're sociologists, and you've done a lot of research, Heilman, and uh, you've, you've looked into this, but you don't really know the inside of this. Happens to be on this end, I'm on the inside of this as well. My uncle, is, my, my wife, my mother's brother, is a, a convert to Chabad, and uh, he has a long beard, but throughout the week when he's working professionally, he pins it. It's only on Shabbat that he lets it down. So as Chaim Rappaport said, you misunderstood, you see those pictures, that's right, he pinned his beard. Not that he was, he was trimming it per se. I mean, there's lots to be said about this. The reason I mention all this is because in the world of Jewish mysticism, amongst the Mekubalim, not only is it a traditional thought for the leader, for the scholar, for the Tamit Hakam to have a beard. Not only is it a grandfather type of uh, attribute and, uh, and, and, and physical appearance, there's something to be said spiritually and mystically, not much of which I'm going to go into specifically because I don't understand it. I need Musa to give the class on that. But what I will tell you is you already have some sort of breakdown in tradition in Italy several hundred years ago. Hatam Sofer, in source number two, Hatam Sofer bi Moshe Sofer, He's an Ashkenazic rabbi living 200 plus years ago in a city called Pressburg. He's addressing this issue. He says, I know, he's writing to the he who's, who's addressing him. I know that mystically, not to touch the beard. He said, but you may have missed the pictures about Rabbeinu Menachem Azariah Afano. Rabbeinu Menachem Azariah Afano, otherwise known as Rama'mi Fano, was one of the great Italian 300 or so years ago, Kabbalists. He says, the pictures we have remaining of him is that he's clean shaven. So he says, seems to be seems to be that we loosened that belt on this matter even in the world of Kabbalah all I'm describing to you, all I'm very briefly demonstrating to you is already how although a strong principle and fundamental in the world of Kabbalah to have a beard, nonetheless, 
there was, over the course of the last several hundred years, some sort of movement. Where did this all originate? In source number three, in Sha'ar HaMisvot. Sha'ar HaMisvot is written by Rabbi Chaim Vital. Rabbi Chaim Vital, Maharhu, Musa can tell you plenty about him, about the burial place in Damascus and so forth. I love hearing it, I really do. Rabbi uh, Chaim Vital is, is, is uh, the author because Arizal himself wrote very little, if at all. And his student, Rabbi Chaim Vital, who spent just several years with him, really wrote much of his writings. There in Sha'ar HaMisvot, in source number three, he cites in the name of his rabbi, my master, the Arizal, says, my master, my mentor, the Arizal, would never touch his beard, not only halachically speaking with a razor, but even with scissors, he wouldn't touch it. Not only his upper beard, but even at his private part, he would never touch it. Not on his neck, not on top. Not even over here, at the bottom of the neck. He would touch only on what I imagine is the mustache area, so it didn't get in the place of eating. That's already an interesting statement, but that is, for all intents and purposes, the origins of this issue. Now, again, there's plenty written about what this means and why it is and so on and so forth. Not my purpose, not my issue right now. My issue right now is source number four. Source number four is where the real action begins. Although there's plenty of action to be discussed and developed beforehand, the real action for me starts in source number four. If you open up to this book called She'elot Tushbot Rav Pe'alim. Rav Pe'alim was written by a very much household name, but for another one of his works, for his work called Ben Ishai. His name was Rabbi Yosef Hayim of Baghdad. He died in 19. 19- in terms of the Middle Eastern Sephardic world of Halakha, he is a foundational primary figure in the last 100, 150, 200 years of Halakha. He is the person who was quoted to the extent that much of the negativity to Hacham Vadya Yosef in the early years of his rabbinic reign was that he was opposing Benish Hai. How could you oppose Benish Hai? He is the Marade Atra, he is the master of the place for all of Sephardic Middle Eastern Jewry. Okay, that being the case, he has not only only is Benish Hai, which was his dirashot, his classes that he gave on Shabbat to the men and women of his community in Baghdad. He has responsa as well. It's called Shailot Tushbot Rav Pe'alim. He has other responses, lots of interesting conversations about each one of them. Rav Pe'alim Helek Dalit has at the end of it what's called Sod Yesharim. Sod Yesharim is now that I answered many of the questions, it's primarily in the traditional uh, response fashion by quoting Gemara, Harambam, Shahanaruch, and so on and so forth. This is in the mystery realm. I'm going to answer specifically Kabbalistically driven and determined questions without taking into account as much the traditional approach to matters. Well, look no further than the left side of the page where I reproduced for you the page in this book. Now, this page in this book, in Rav Pe'alim, until very recently, almost every standard edition of Rav Pe'alim that you would purchase or pick up looked exactly like that. There's something conspicuously missing, and that is there is a blank space in Simanhe. Now you say, if they wanted to take it out, just restructure the book. This is before we had Microsoft Word or even any of the other word processors with which we can fix those sorts of things. It took a lot more money and effort to redo the entire book. Instead, they blanked out what used to be present in Simanhe. 
fascinating thing. Not only that, they kept the rest of the simanim. There was no denying that there was a siman he. You look in the earlier editions. Now the important part is that Rav Pe'alim Halek Dalid is published after the death of Rabbi Yosef Hayim of Baghdad. But effectively, and I reproduced the Tishuba on the right hand side, what he writes in this Tishuba is he's being asked by a male, are they allowed to cut the hairs in their private area? And he cites our source number three, Arizal. And he says, you should know Arizal was only opposed not from a Kabbalistic position that's applicable to all, trimming, specifically pulling out. Again, halachically speaking, any man, any man could pull out hairs from their, their, their beard. From their, from their, there's no problem with that. You could use tweezers to pull out. People do it all the time. That's not an issue. The issue is if you use a razor and you're going into it in such a fashion, there's several different things we could talk about. We could talk about pulling out. We could talk about trimming. We could talk about using a razor, getting a very close shape. Razors, as from the Torah. Benish Haid, Yosef Haim of Baghdad argues that even in the Kabbalistic tradition, pulling out is the problem. Trimming was something that Arizal was scrupulous about, but was never, quote-unquote, the normative mainstream Kabbalistic tradition. His suggestion is that's permitted according to the mystical word. Not that Arizal did it, that was seemingly clear, but that would be permitted. I was like, what, what happened to it? Where, where'd it go? So the answer to where it went is there were claims that he never wrote those words. Oh, come on, how did he never write that? How did they make their way in? Now, it wasn't just the yo-yos on the side. His son, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, claimed, my father never wrote that. I'm very, happy, I'm very unhappy that it was placed in the book. Blanked it out. That's a fascinating thing. And that's, again, another one of these impossible halachic opinions. The claim was it's impossible that he wrote it. They brought proofs that he elsewhere in a book, Torah Lishma, ostensibly uh, went against this. Ah, people contradict themselves from time to time. We have other contradictions between his words. We don't therefore throw them out per se. To the extent that most recently in the book Vayashov Hayam of Rabbi Yaakov Moshe Hillel, was a rabbi who used to, at the very least, frequent the community very often. He's the head rabbi of Yeshivat Ahavat Shalom in Yerushalayim. And his book, Vayashov Hayam Chalak Aleph in Siman Yodalit, he makes the following claim. First and foremost, there are all sorts of aspersions that were cast. Again, when you're dealing with an important individual who's no longer alive for several hundred years or a hundred years or so, anything that he writes, you know, with a fine magnifying glass, you're going to dissect and determine. So he wrote another book, Od Yosef Hai. There are all sorts of claims. Maybe he didn't really write this part, he didn't write this part. In Vayashu Vayam, Rabbi Hillel says, everything Benish High wrote and is attributed to him, he wrote. Don't do that. He gets angry at Rabbi Yitzhak Nisim, the former chief rabbi of Israel, for claiming that portions in Od Yosef High weren't written by Benish High. However, there is one passage, he says, which was just not written by him. Uh, really? Which one? It was that passage, our source number four. And so that he's clear about. How could you say so? He says, well, I'll bring you proof, X, Y, and Z, and as a result, wipe it out. Pretend it never existed. Now, this is just the first of, and there are dozens of these. These are the three that I chose case studies of circumstance situations where it's almost jarring how, because, and, and this is really what I attribute it to, the fact that a mainstream personality, rabbi, Halachic decider determined something which runs or ran counter to the mainstream, was never accepted, was perhaps neglected even in their time, 
there's a general understanding. We follow the majority opinion. We go with the mainstream, with the normative, and as a result, it can't be that erotic. Now, I'll bring you proofs. We can bring proofs about anything and everything. You can bring proofs that what I said yesterday, I didn't mean because a year ago I said differently. You could, but maybe I changed my mind. It's hard to determine that there's a particular danger to any field, and specifically in my mind to the world of halakha, where we're seeking a vibrancy, we'll have to develop and get to this point. Each opinion, although neglected, although quote-unquote forgotten, although quote-unquote impossible, if recorded, if stated, is, has a certain importance for it being preserved. That's the first issue. Second issue, without, and I repeat, really without getting into the politics, but I needed to put it because it's politically relevant, not getting into the issue. It's a whole class. We've done a whole class or more on this topic, on the issue of abortion. Again, I'm not getting into the halakhic ramifications, certainly not the polit political ramifications, none in any of that. I want to deal with hal impossible halakhic opinions. That's really all I want to deal with. There is a classic debate classic, even though it's only a few decades old, with regards to Jewish law and abortion. It is generally a consensus in a neutral circumstance. I'm not talking about specific circumstances in the situation. In a neutral circumstance that it's forbidden to abort a baby. That is the assumption. I know you're going to ask me, what about before 40 days? What about? I'm not dealing when it's endangering the mother. All important situations. However, in a neutral circumstance, it's prohibited to abort a baby. The question is why it is prohibited to do so. And that question has a lot of ramifications. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, in several places, one of them being in source number seven, is Igrot Moshe Hoshin Mishpat Helek Bet Siman Ayin, suggests because it's considered, in his mind, murder. That's right, it's considered murder. Uh, but you don't get death penalty for it. It's murder without death penalty. Generally speaking, in halakha, murdering another person in cold blood is punishable by saif, by being beheaded in court. For killing a fetus, for killing a baby inside the mother's uh, the womb, it's not punishable by death, but it is considered murder. That's a very strong and severe opinion. He was debated on this, on this matter by many. I'm not, I'm not getting into who's the winning decider. In Yeshiva University, this was a long-standing debate and conversation amongst the Rashi Yeshiva and the Halakha. And it is throughout. But however, there's a very strong counter-opinion, and that's Sitz Eliezer. Sitz Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer, Yehuda Waldenberg, whom we mentioned in previous weeks, in other circumstances, his opinion, and he's got pretty solid grounding for making this claim, is it's prohibited, it's forbidden. However, it's not considered murder. It's going to sound like I'm diminishing, but I'm not, he's talking halakhically speaking, and as a result, you'll understand there's going to be more leniencies for his position. His position is it's considered habala, it's considered harming, to the extent that if you look in Parashat Mishpatim, the Torah describes at the end Parashat Mishpatim, if, not at the end, toward the end of Parashat Mishpatim, if two men are fighting, and one of them strikes a pregnant woman, if they don't kill the woman, but the baby comes out, they have to pay the husband for the value of the babies. Why are you paying for the value? Again, Rav Moshe Feinstein would say, that was considered murder, but all we're punishing you for is the value. How do you value? Okay, we have to discuss and debate that and understand that. However, says Rav Waldenberg, again, it's more complex than I'm making it, that is considered havala. It's damage. It's bodily damage to the mother, and as a result, it's punishable by payment. It's not permitted, but that's the conversation 
for all intents and purposes, boiling it down to literally two minutes. That being the case, the following was raised. In She'elot Ishubot Maharit, that's in source number six. Maharit spans back some several hundred years. Now this is long before Rav Moshe Feinstein and Rabbi Waldenberg were even a thought. This is 400 or so years ago. Maharit, his name was Rabbi Yosef of Trani, another Italian rabbi. Now in his She'elot Ishubot, which are widely accepted, I have two or three versions of She'elot Ishubot Maharit. Very important for any halachic decider, not me, but a real halachic person who's involved in halacha needs She'elot Tushbot Maharit, and you're going to be siding and dealing with. In Siman Saditet of his Chilak Aleph in source number six, he states unequivocally, clearly, explicitly, whatever other word you want me to use to tell you, if you read the words, he says that abortion is not considered murder, abortion is considered damage to the mother. That's it. That's what he writes. We can and should debate it, both from a political standpoint, from a halakh standpoint, all important. However, Maharit stated that unequivocally. This was brought as a proof against Rav Moshe Feinstein. And Rav Moshe Feinstein, source number seven, said, Oh, that Maharit? Did you know he contradicts himself later on? Do you want to know what that source number six really is? It's Mizuyaf, it's forged. Lo olam, he never wrote it. Ah, it's a shocking statement. And this is a person of truth, Rav Moshe Feinstein. And I don't, I don't blame him for this. I understand this perspective. In his mind, this system is so concretized and he's so convinced about his approach to this matter that he can't accept that. That's so how he'll use those words. He does it in other circumstances. He's notorious for doing this in specific circumstances. It reminds me in this respect, although over there at work, there's a book called Mi Yerushalayim, Mi Yerushalayim. It's written by Mayor, Rabbi Mayor Barilan. Mayor Barilan his original name was Berlin and then he changed his name to Barilan he's the father of he's the founder of Barilan University he was the son of Mitziva Volazhin Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin his father then was the last one of the last Rashi Yeshiva Volazhin Yeshiva he writes for all intents and purposes an autobiography with a biography of his father and the mentors and rabbis and individuals and politicians he met over the course of many years it was recently republished I didn't have a chance to read it until this Pesach I wanted to read it for a this Pesach, I read through a bunch of it. And in it, he describes, I think Rav Zevin makes this claim as well. He says, Rav Chaim Salavechik, Rav Chaim Salavechik, of course, being the grandfather of the Rabbi Salavechik that we'll even cite in this class. Rav Chaim Salavechik was once uh, giving a class. I think he was speaking at a Sauda of some sort. And in the midst of the class, someone said, but what about Tosafot in Masechet or something or another? He says, no such thing. I said, oh, really? No such thing. And he continued his class. And he finished the class and said, oh, and then the student ran, opens up the book and says, look, no such thing. Rabbi, you know everything. How did you know? It's amazing. I was asking you a question. I just learned the Tosafot yesterday. Masechet, I don't know, Temuran. You, he said, I didn't know that Tosafot by heart. I didn't know that daf by heart. He said, but I was so clear, and I had this intuition as to the direction of how this halachic Talmudic thought worked. It couldn't be that there was such a Tosafot. It was just impossible. It's through those lenses that I understand both source number five, Rabbi Hillel, as well as source number seven, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. So I'm not blaming them for their claim. I am cautioning against making claims of forgery never happened because of what we'll lead into in a few moments. And that is, 
that although in the sphere of halacha you can make the claim, all right, he was a major opinion, but it doesn't fit into our system. As a result, we'll relegate him to the side to throw him out, to assume it never happened. Not so simple, as we'll discuss in just a few moments. To the extent that Rabbi Waldenberg defending himself in source number eight, in the introduction to the book of, Rabbi Stein, of Dr. Steinberg, he writes, Remember as a child, the first time I saw this, it's grump. I couldn't understand who was the grumpy rabbi. He says, what does Rabbi Moshe Feinstein do with Maharit? He took the easy way out of this. He wrote, says, says Rabbi Voldemort, that's a very, a very clever pun because tame tame yikra, the words in the, the words that we describe to a person who's a mesora, you say about them they're tame tet mem aleph. Tame tame yikra, you say about them they're tame. Over here, tame taf mem he means to question. I'm questioning, questioning about this. He says, "Efshar, ech efshar laakor teshubash lemab marit." How could you? How's it extensive? How's it even all al hadat? How can you even imagine that you're throwing out a tishuba? You're assuming a tishuba is mizuyefit is forged because it doesn't fit your system. Now, again, it's not to argue that Ramosha Feinstein can't negate that. But to claim, as Rabbi Waldenberg is pointing out, as we're developing, that it never happened, not only dangerous, it also stunts a system which needs a vibrancy, which necessitates opinions which maybe were never caught on as the mainstream to persist, as we'll discuss in just a moment. Yes, Gavin. To, to comment, but don't the rabbis themselves in the Talmud do the same thing with certain you know, laws like, uh, you know, and into that nature, Sota, where they actually said that can't couldn't happen because it didn't fit their, their rationalization. So, two things. First of all, not Sota. Not Sota. Ben Sorer More and Now, on each of those, the Gemara has a dissenting opinion which says, I was there and I sat on the grave of the individual. However, you're, you're, you're 100% correct. However, uh, this is the however. This is after a long debate about the laws relevant to Ben Sorero More, which, pr- which pr- prompted me as a teacher this year of Masechet Sanhedrin to ask the obvious question. If in the eyes of the rabbis, it's inconceivable. If in the eyes of the rabbis, lo lihiot, so then why is it recorded at all? And the answer has to be, and it's going to fit very much into this, has to be that the principles of law the values that underlie it, the, the, the theory inherent in such a thought has to somehow inform this system as well. So you're right, but they keep the laws and conversations in Talmud. Even with the perspective of it couldn't be and it won't be, it's still all there. That's the same claim I'm making here. And the second point is, you said before that uh, abortion in, in terms of... Uh, how they look at it was damages to the mother. Yes. But if the mother herself uh, you know, decided that that would be in her best interest, how could it be damages to her? Important conversation. I mean it. And we'll learn on another occasion, in which he addresses it. And the answer, by the way, is 
that in some circumstances, as a result, there is a leniency to that extent. You know, a, a simple ramification, but, uh, it's simple, but it's, it's more far-fetched, is what about a terrible circumstance? And th this I once read that happened during World War I. There was a woman who was raped by some German soldier of some sort, a Jewish woman, and the German soldier put a gun to her head or to the doctor's head and said, abort this child or I kill you. Now, if the child, by aborting, is killing, you need to take the bullet to your head in a crazy way. If alternatively it's damaged, that's well, not, not good to do, but, but that there is and, and must be several very important conversations surrounding that. But third issue and final case study for our purposes this morning, and again, the first one I forgot to mention. The first one, I don't think I discovered it there, but I did read about it. Mark Shapiro has a book on censorship in, uh, in Talmudic and Jewish thought over the course of many generations, and you should be certain, and it is there, that he has that uh, Benish height. So it's not my discovery, and most of these are not my discoveries, but he, he makes a claim that is even a picture in his book, as I recall, of that, um, you know, Ayen Viduk. Uh, okay, so in our, our, for our purposes, the third example. third example is a favorite of mine for many reasons not to be addressed right now, but uh, you may have heard me talk about it because it's a favorite of mine in many different contexts, and it's the following issue. It first has a history to it, and beyond that has a certain fundamental uh, with regards to an appreciation of minhag and halakha, and that is aseret adiberot. We're going to read in just a few weeks from now. Should we, as a con congregation, as a community, stand up during aseret adiberot or not? So the history I mentioned is I was once in a synagogue and a different rabbi got the aliyah. And so someone turned to me and said, I know everyone's going to get angry on all angles at me for a moment. So someone says, should I stand up as I'm standing up? I was standing up for the honor of the rabbi. So I said, oh yeah, sure, I think it's appropriate. And so the person turned, oh, you may have been there, rabbi. So the person turned to the congregation and says, it went like this, told everyone to stand up. And there was an uproar, because there was a traditionalist in the crowd and said, how could you say that? We don't stand up for the Aseret HaDiberot. So he said, I didn't say it, the rabbi said it. A whole wild scene or whatever. I, I, so I, I think I stopped, I said, everybody should do what they want to do right now. I, I, was, I wasn't, now. I, again, that, that was, now in the book, before we even go onward, just to dispel the halachic ramifications for a moment, in the book Derech Eretz, Derech Eretz is a book published in the past 30 or so years, which records the halabi minhagim. He records in there that the minhag of Yotzei Halab, Aleppo Jewry, is that they always sit down for Aseret HaDiberot. So not to be questioned, that seems to be, at the very least, a tradition in our community, not what I want to address, not what I'm looking to change in any way, shape, or form. The question is, A, why is it that this is a conversation? Why do some in Ashkenazi Kehilot certainly st they stand up? And furthermore, why should we specifically be sitting down? So it's got a history. In source number nine, it's Shelot Shabbat Debar Shemuel. That's that's the counterclaim. One hundred percent, you're ahead of me. In source number nine, as usual. Source number nine, indeed. No, source, you've heard me too many times. Shelo Tishbot Debar Shemuel is Rabbi Shemuel Abuhab. Rabbi Shemuel Abuhab was an important Italian rabbi at the end of his life in the 16th to early 17th century. Um, he, they just republished his Shelo Tishbot. If I make my way to Lakewood soon, I, I want to get it. It's republished Shelo Tishbot Debar Shemuel. Anyway, in there, he's questioning. He says our. Custom is to stand up. 
He seems to be saying that that's everyone's custom. Stand up for Aseret in the middle. He says, why so? He says, well, look in the Torah. The Torah describes The Torah says they were prostrated. They were standing up at the bottom of the mountain. As we recreate, as we reenact Ma'amad Har Sinai, we too stand up. That's the statement of Shailot Teshubot Debar Shemuel. Maran Hachida, our Bihayim Yosef David Azulai, in the source number 10, his book Tuva Ayin says, you should know People stand up during Aseret HaDiberot. You should never be the one sitting down. You shouldn't be telling someone to sit down. You should stand up. This is our custom. It's a hiyuv now to stand up. That's some 200 years ago. That's 1806, he passes away. He's describing, and he was a globetrotter. So he's in many different congregations. This has to do with the development of halakha type of thing. In other words, the fact that we're so negated to this, this is 200 years ago. He's talking about this as the widespread custom. Important to note as well. Why negated? Seems to be the reality. There was in the last 200 years a discovery of certain responses from Harambam, some in the Cairo Geniza, others from elsewhere. And in one of those Teshubot, in source number 11, this is in the Fryman edition, Siman Memvav, was found the following response. Harambam responds, you should not stand up for the Aseret al-Berot because the Gemarad Masech Berachot describes how as part of Birkot Kiryat Shema, they used to recite Aseret al-Berot. The rabbis were very nervous about that. Don't recite that in the midst of the prayer because people will begin to say, that's the only important halachot. They were nervous about Christianity. Primary law and then ancillary law. This is what we care about, not other things. Take that out of the tefillah. Keep Kiryat Shema. Don't have Aseret al-Berot. Says Harambam, can you imagine, as Musa said a moment ago, if we stand up just for one portion of the Torah, Aseret al-Berot, people will begin to say, it's called Tara'omet Aminim. You see, Judaism is primarily about the Ten Commandments, not about anything else. Harambam is very strong, very fierce about his position on this. Do not stand up for Aseret HaDiberot. All right, that leaves us in the last 200 years to figure out what to do with this. Seems to be a long-standing tradition to stand up. Harambam was vehemently opposed. For some reason his opinion wasn't accepted. What are we supposed to do? Take someone like Chacham Vadeh Yosef to say, my principles of halacha, my methodology, determine and decide for me that if Harambam stated so, if I like his logic, that's the way we're going to make it. And he begins, he writes in his Yehavedat, Chaylik Alf Siman Kavtet, again, Chaylik Vav Siman Chet, everybody should sit down. He commands, he demands that the rabbis of congregations get up and announce, everybody sit down, do not stand up for the Ten Commandments. Don't do so. It's wrong to do so. Rabbi Mazuz parenthetically points out, and I once read in one, in one place, he points out, he says, maybe that's why we send the rabbi up for Aseret HaDibirot. This way you don't have a fight. Everybody stands up for the rabbi. Rabbi, little did he know, not every congregation do they stand up for the rabbi. But anyway, that being the case, that's Chacham Vadya Yosef's vantage point. That's his claim. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, ever the traditionalist, says, okay, Harambam may have stated so. This time he doesn't negate Harambam. He says, but our tradition is to stand up. We're going to continue standing up. Says Chacham Vadya Yosef, apparently you missed Harambam's Teshubot. No, no, he didn't miss it. He wasn't interested. And in he loves Harambam. For normative mainstream halacha, he says, we're practicing based on what our congregation and congregations have done. Interestingly, in source number 15, another book called Yehavedat, written by a contemporary of Chacham Vadya Yosef. His name was Rabbi Yitzhak Hazan. Rabbi Yitzhak Hazan was a Moroccan rabbi who was living around the same time period, a little bit earlier, but they overlapped in his Siman Yodbet. He says, I'm not going to really get into this matter, into the intricacies of how to determine and what to determine. He says, but my congregation 
my community, the Moroccan community, we've for generations, for hundreds of years, been standing up for the Ten Commandments. You're going to tell me to negate that? This became for us our practice. This became for us our reality. I can't understand such a, a different approach, any negating, dissenting opinion. Haram Bam is fantastic, but I can't accept it. Tradition, tradition. You know, he would love Fiddler on the roof to that. Except that's yeah. the argument of Rabbi Hazan. It comes to the fore for our purposes. And here's, the, for me, the most intriguing part. In Tafshin Nun, I looked up this book two days ago. That's 1990, if I'm not mistaken. This book, Min Hageha Hidam. Min Hageha Hidam. I found it maybe once. I, I own it, but I found it in a used bookstore in Lakewood. It's written by a Rabbi Reuven Amar. Amar already can understand this, a Moroccan last name. And Rabbi Reuven Amar in his Minhagia Hida, effectively what he's out to do is to defend the customs of the Moroccans, of the northern uh, African congregations. And so he does. And so on this matter, here's the fascinating part. I saw this actually referenced in uh, Professor Sperber's book. And he says, you know that Teshubav Harambam? I don't think he wrote it. Oh, I don't think he wrote it. He says, well, he doesn't write anything in Mishneh Torah, and our congregation never did it, and nobody knew about it. Oh, yeah, I discovered something. I don't think he wrote it. Now, again, to negate it, to be Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, to be Yehavedat Hazan in source number 15, I understand. To negate it? Starts off, he says, the halacha is not that way. Even if we're to claim that he actually wrote it. I think we have to cast dispersion. We just discovered it. I don't know that. In a different response to collection of Harambam, it's not mentioned. I don't know about it. Again, any time this becomes the claim, there's a specific and particular danger to ossifying, to making archaeology of our tradition. It's reminiscent, reminds me of a specific circumstance. Just, a, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, there was a book written about the Midrashim of the Hachamim and the Hazals and, and what they meant when they, when they mentioned certain opinions in Midrashim. And there's a well-known opinion of Rabbeinu Avraham ben Harambam. Rabbeinu Avraham ben Harambam, of course, has his, uh, he has a, a direction on how to learn Midrashim. And in it, he describes how, in the words of the Hachamim, when they talk about medical matters, for example, they were at the top of their society in terms of understanding, but top of society, 1,500 uh, years ago, is not the top of the medical world today. And as a result, to claim that they had it, maybe not fully figured out, or not fully figured out, is not heresy in any way, shape, or form along those lines, his sorts of claims. So this book came out, and this book did some work on the different manuscripts of, uh, of Rabbeinu Avraham ben Harambam and said there's discrepancies, a word and a letter here, and it was comparing four or five different ones. You know the author, Rani, and he says, as a result of a few discrepancies, and this part was misquoted over there, and so on and so forth, Rabbeinu Avraham ben Harambam never wrote it. I read it, but I'm not. I don't work in manuscripts. At that time period, I was, I was praying in Kol Israel, and uh, Isaac Sassoon, Haki Sassoon, would, would frequent. His family is in possession of many, was in possession of many of Kitvera ben Avraham, Avraham ben Arambab. So I lent him the book. He, half a year later, when I was already out, in Sha'ar Shalom, he showed up randomly on a shahrit one morning. He said to me, please take this book. I can't have this in my home any longer. I said, what do you mean? I said, no, it was a present to you. He says, I can't. He makes claims like that. He says, and so on and so forth, whatever. But again, I understand and I very much uh, identify with such an opinion. Even if, even if you're to win the argument that 
and I, I have to disagree, that Rabbi Avraham's opinion on this matter was not accepted, even if that was the case. To argue, therefore, it never happened is not only disingenuous, but it also has ended future conversations in halakha. Okay, well that brings us to the last segment of the class. We had three case studies with regards to situations where a halachic decision was recorded and then because it never caught on, there were claims that maybe this never happened, maybe they never actually wrote that. Not that they didn't mean it, they never wrote it. The question is, what is there to be said about that opinion? It was a neglected opinion. So there's several vantage points with regards to the importance of preserving opinions and discussions and ideas that have arisen even if they didn't catch on. First and foremost, in source number 17. So, uh, and this is a question. How did the system talk about absolute authority? It's classically, we never have anything accepting, not a man, no Amorah, no, uh, we don't accept anyone absolute or reject him absolute. Unless it's a suit, you don't edit it. I, I, I like it. How did the system get in? Again, the, the perspective more than anything is, not systematically, but maybe in terms of their perspective of practice. You're saying systematically we never did so. You're right. They're doing that. Each one in their own way. It's a strange thing. I'm agreeing with you, and it's not traditional to make such a claim. I'm defending them by saying they didn't actually mean it. They just meant it's so not mainstream. From a mainstream authority, it can't be. Well, you're right, uh, and, and, and there are dozens upon dozens of such examples where this just seems to happen. What is the importance of it, though? You're right, that is the system. <laughs> so I have, I, have, I, have one I have several perspectives for the significance. In source number 17, his name was Rabbi Saban. Rabbi Saban, if I'm not mistaken, I looked this up this morning, passed away in 1995. He was a rabbi from, from Jerba, I think, from Tunisia and those areas. So again, a northern African rabbi, and he's commenting on our last issue, the standing or sitting for the Aseret HaDeberot. And so his claim is, listen, I'm not, my words, I'm not throwing away the Teshubah of Harambam. I'm not. I defend it. Of course he wrote it. No problem. I'm defending my community's custom of standing up. But I'm granting authority to Harambam if you start, and we've done a class, more than one class on this, if you're starting a new community, if you're a Baal Teshubah, if you're a convert and starting your own congregation, you don't have customs already. You want to open up and determine the law and the custom and the precedence for this congregation? Look at Harambam. Take it into account. Now, again, that's a very important claim over there because what he's saying is keep the neglected quote-unquote opinions because they might have and should have a life in some future context. In the context that we currently have it, in our congregation, in our community, there's not really a place for this. This is the way we've been doing it. If there's some other circumstance, that's where you'll apply it. It comes to the fore, this sort of approach, in the following context. In the Mishnah, in Masechet Eidu'yot, at the very end of the first chapter, the Mishnayot, Mishnah He, Mishnah Vav, talk about why minority opinions are recorded in Mishnayot. And from Mishnah He to Mishnah Vav, there's a little bit of a discrepancy about which the Mefashim discuss. I don't want to get into the technicalities of reading their words uh, and how they read it into the Mishnah, but there's the following two approaches, one more radical than the other. The first is Ra'avad. Ra'avad, Rabbi Avraham bin David of Dampir. Um, his approach here in source number 19 is, and this I think we're all familiar with, uh, imagine the circumstance. You've either done it yourself or turned to someone who has done it for you. It's called sha'at dahak Dahak means to push. You're in a pushed against the wall situation. 
It's a difficult circumstance. It's not a neutral circumstance. What do I do then? So, hey, look in Shulchan Aruch. Look at, no, but I, I, I want to look into What are you looking into it? You know, what did you do last week? No, but I'm in a pressing situation. In that circumstance, these quote-unquote minority, neglected opinions, they're very significant because the principle, time and again in halakha, the Gemara Masechet Eruvina Daf Yod Gimalav, Elu Elu Divre Elohim Hayim means, as Ezra said, there's a validity, there's a strength to every opinion, even if, and this is important, it's the minority opinion. That's what the Mishnah seems to be telling us in Masechet We will mention Hachamim versus Rabbi Meir, but you're going to follow Chachamim, Ahare Rabbim Lahatot, that's our principle in law. But Shatadacha, in a circumstance where it's going to be pressing and necessary to apply that minority, no, the minority opinion is Mizuyaf, it's uh, never written. No, no, it was written. It maybe wasn't accepted, but its validity exists. It's those words, Elu Elu Divre Elohim Hayim. Hayim means the living Lord. It's on purpose that the rabbis use such words. These. Hora'acha is even further. Hora'acha will, neg- will negate even explicit law. Over here we have a minority opinion who wasn't the accepted one. Sha'at ad-dahak, you're in a pressing situation, big financial laws, so on and so forth. Mental health, whatever, in those sorts of circumstances, we'll go to Sha'at ad-dahak. Hora'acha is, oh, there's a lot on the line for our nation, our congregation. We'll sacrifice like Eliyahu did on Har HaKarmel outside of the appropriate place, which is a direct negation of the law. That's Ra'avad. Along those lines, but even further, Rashmi Shans, the first time I discovered this one was in an article by Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein, Zichrono Livracha. He has the following claim. It's a fascinating one. Ezra... I think I've mentioned in your context, right up your alley, I think, until you tell me you're very angry about it. Anyway, it goes as follows. It says, generally speaking, the principle is, Emoraim, rabbis from the time of the Gemara, don't, quote-unquote, not allowed to, for one reason or another, disagree with Tanaim, the rabbis from the time of the Mishnah. Generally speaking, rabbis from after the closing of Talmud don't disagree with opinions in the Talmud, and so forth. His claim is, again, since since even the minority opinion is a real opinion, since even the opinion which we haven't been following is a truthful opinion, it will give strength to future generations to build themselves up, even though, quote-unquote, I'm not allowed to disagree with the earlier generation, but I'm not disagreeing. You see that minority opinion? Now, in today's context, I can, together with my friends on the Bedin and my congregation, my, and my circumstance, effectively tap back into that. Yes, ma'am? But they make an open tap to Take the opinion, but you are right. Manny's just pointing out that the Hachmeh Talmud, the rabbis in the Gemara, will nonetheless find ways sometimes to apply their opinion. I'm talking about where they can't make, he's talking about where they can't make the Ukimta. They'll nonetheless say, oh, but Rabbi Meir will side with Rabbi Meir, is his suggestion. We can, because we now have a Rov Minyan Binyan. It's now the popular thought. It's now contextually appropriate for us. And as, so what we've suggested then is that by preserving, instead of negating those impossible and minority halakhic opinions, three of which of dozens 
not hundreds, we've discussed the importance, the significance is to keep that life of halacha. Number one, in a neutral circumstance, I'm starting a new congregation, I'm newfound to this religion, I'm trying to determine my law, I can and should perhaps then turn to the minority opinion and see if it's an appealing appropriate one for me along the lines of halacha. Number two, sha'at adahak. If the law was ossified, if it was set in place, it lost its life. There's no applicability. It's not contextually sensitive any longer. And number three, in terms of strength, a continuous strength of determination. Now, I'm not telling you this is always working. I'm not telling you that we're constantly changing laws. I'm telling you in the ideal sense, that's how Rashmi Shantz envisions it, again, specifically because the underlying principle is, as Ezra articulately stated, we've never given absolute authority to one opinion, opinion over the other, other than, he says, Moshe Rabbeinu. Lastly, and this one you might not be as happy with, but now at the very least you'll understand, at least I do, you'll understand another approach to halacha with taking everything we've said into account. Rabbi Salavechik, my father's rabbi uh, for, for many uh, purposes and for many years in Yeshiva University, he was of this uh, Brisker family, Brisker dynasty. And generally speaking, you know, uh, certainly the way he's portrayed in, in the modern Orthodox world, maybe in our communities, for his thought. What about for his halakha? How did he practice halakha? So I imagine, oh, he must have, must have walked in like me, you know, the purple pants. and No, 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 he was a staunch traditionalist when it came to halakha. Very much so to the extent, as his student, Rabbi Herschel Schechter, points out in source number 21, every minority opinion was a cause for anxiety, was a cause for how do I fit that into my Veltenshang? His grandson, Rabbi Moshe Tversky, it's my rabbi, Rabbi Meir Tversky's brother, Rabbi Moshe Tversky, in Yeshiva's uh, Taurus Moshe, this is what I was told by some of his students on Purim, when there was a certain levity in the air in his home, they would push him, they would push his grandson to reveal to them all the humrot, the stringencies he had, in any, and they would laugh their heads off, you serious? That's what you do with them? So it sounds hard to you, me and you, as I was, to, 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 if we're talking from a rational perspective, it's not the way the halakha system works. The halakha is we have a mainstream opinion. That's a humrah, okay? But anxiety? You're trying to fulfill all the opinions? Suggests Rabbi Herschel Schechter in the name of his rabbi, Rabbi Salvech, he says, well, if, and I'm, I'm developing it in our context, if we're to grant a validity to all these opinions, if we've never negated the other opinion, if it remains a part of our tradition, albeit not in the practiced fashion, well, then maybe I need to be nervous about that opinion. There is life to that opinion as well. Now, that's not going to be the approach, perhaps, of anyone in this room. But we can now appreciate and understand such an approach. And a, a psychologist might claim that's really driven by OCD. It might be. I don't think so, though. I think there's a philosophical underpinning to it. I think that would be the rationale to the extent that Rabbi Shechter points out as well, the Gemara in Masechet Rosh Hashanah, he quotes it from the Midrash, quotes about Rabbi Avahu. Rabbi Avahu, there's lots of interpretations, we've discussed this in different classes, had the system in place that we now follow even further today on Rosh Hashanah, the way we sound the Shofar. You see, once upon a time, Shivarim was uncertain what the real sounds of Shivarim were. Is it what we call Teruah today? Or is it what we call Shivarim today? Rabbi Avahu said, you know what? Let's do both. If that was the case today, we'd have an uproar. My goodness, what color is this? What would go wild? That's in the Gemara. The Gemara is explicit. That was Rabbi Avahu's approach. Says Rabbi Hashem He says the Midrash calls Rabbi Avahu a pious, God-fearing individual. 
it's not relegating him to the wrong approach. It's, it's, approach, it's an approach which has a validity. I'm not telling you we're going to find that mainstreamed all that often. Another notable exception, which is more and more popular, is Tefillin of Rabbeinu Tam. Tefillin of Rabbeinu Tam, more and more popular to the extent that two opinions, we generally have chosen one, I can understand it. I can understand such an approach in saying, I want to, perhaps I feel compelled to give validity to that approach as well, because it fits within us. No, but we have one, generally speaking, we do, but it's not that we've negated. If you've negated that opinion, you've effectively erased all those teshubot we've been discussing, right? I'm not telling you you're going to practice that opinion, but I'm going to tell you there's a certain respect for such an approach. In short, very briefly, we gave three case studies, the first being the beard of Benish Hai, the second being the abortion case of Maharit of Rav Moshe Feinstein, the third being the Teshubav Harambam with regards to standing for Aseret or specifically sitting. In each of those we've realized over the course of different generations there's been claims never was written, forged, he never wrote that, and so on and so forth. And the question in each of those circumstances was, is this appropriate even if it's not accepted, even if the son of Benish Hai says it wasn't my father's opinion, I know. But does that therefore negate it? Should we therefore erase it? And the suggestion is very clearly not. For several fundamental reasons, the most, the most fundamental one that really streams through all of them is within the system of halakha as we, as we approach the texts of our tradition. As we tap into the truths of our tradition, it needs to be envisioned as one which has a constant vibrancy. The second we've stagnated it by putting a block on it and saying this is the right approach as opposed to that one, we've taken a divre Elohim Hayim and we've made it into a life of death, no life at all. Elova Elu divre Elohim Hayim is a approach and understanding which is so a part of this tradition and the system to the extent that there aren't any impossible opinions. Impossible is if it runs counter to explicit law. But if it runs counter to the normative practice, that's not impossible. If it runs counter to the majority, that's minority. But it's still a part of it and will therefore find its life in appropriate and significant circumstances down the line in the future and present. Baruch Adonai Amen. Amen.